Acts 24, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 9. And in our previous studies of this book, we've seen Paul placed in protective custody up to this point. Uh, He is in protective custody because there are people that are after Paul who have literally vowed to not eat or drink anything until Paul is dead. I would say that that is, uh, that is a very serious vow, and I would be rather worried if somebody made that vow about me. He needed a protective uh, custody because there's conspiracies to take him and kill him. Uh, over 40 men had made that vow to themselves. And so uh, uh, Lysias thought, i got to get this guy out of this city. i got to hide this guy. And so he thought he was doing Paul a favor And he sends him from Jerusalem to Caesarea, to Felix, right? He's like, Felix will fix this situation. And I I remember uh, talking to my daughter, and whenever I say the name Felix, she automatically thinks Wreck-It Ralph and Fix-It Felix. Like, that's that's a a kid's movie that's going on now. And during my, when I was growing up, there was a movie called Felix the Cat. Did any of you ever see Felix the Cat? And I remember there was a movie in the 90s, and it was called, it was Felix the Cat, but it was Felix the Cat Saves Christmas. Have any of you seen that movie? So I actually looked it up to recount the memories, and I looked at it, and it said basically every other review was never watch this movie. It's horrible. And I was like, I thought I had fond childhood memories, but I guess I'm misremembering. But what we're going to see is it's not Felix the Cat. It's not Fix It Felix. We can really refer to him as Felix the Rat. Because by the end of this, you're going to see actions that he, he takes that are, are very rat-like, that are very underhanded, and he does not have Paul's interests in mind. Felix was a terrible guy. Uh, Felix uh, was known for, uh, he was a terrible leader. He was known for the riots that would take place in his city uh, during that time in the area. Historians, in fact, Craig Keener, uh, who's an expert commentator on the book of Acts, says that he was one of the most corrupt rulers during this time. Uh, Not only were riots taking place, but he was actively taking bribes and kickbacks. And this is how many judicial decisions would be decided, uh, was from these Uh, kickbacks that he would receive in these bribes. Uh, Another commentator said this, he sat as a king but ruled as a tyrant. This is where Paul is moving. Remember, he's moving from riots, people that are taking 40-day vows that they're not going to eat or drink anything before until they kill him, and now he's going to a a crooked king, right, who can be bought with money. This is where the situation that Paul finds himself in. And really, we, we have this court case now that's kind of opening up for us. Now, uh, did any of you ever, when you were kids, you took a sick day, right? You had a sick day? And when I say a sick day, I mean a real sick day. Because we've all taken those sick days where we could have probably gone in, uh, right? But we, we don't. I, I'm talking about, there, I can count probably on one hand, and when I was in high school, the amount of sick days I actually needed to take. And I remember there, on those days where I was so debilitated that I couldn't really move, uh, my mom would turn on PBS and she would just say, have, have, like, just lay there. <laughs> and I'd be like, okay. And so I would watch, like, the little cartoons that were on there. And then uh, Bob Ross, the paint guy, would come up and I would fall asleep, right, to the painting of Bob Ross. And then uh, I remember my mom would come in with lunch and she'd change the channel. And what would come on was uh, some sort of court television show, right? And these, I don't know if they're fake, but they're like, they read the, the case 
and you already know what the verdict is. Like, that guy's clearly guilty. I don't have to hear anything that comes out of his mouth. You've already told me what the verdict is. And as I'm reading this passage, that's kind of what it feels like. You're like, Paul is innocent. The evidence that's presented is not evidence. Uh, Paul gets up, gives a clear-cut case. It should be slammed shut. Like, very easy case to resolve. But it's not. So we'll, we'll really see right here. Look at verse 1. That's who Paul was passed to. Look at verse 1. And after five days, Ananias the high priest descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus who informed the governor, remember Felix the rat, against Paul. Note first the animosity that exists towards Paul. Uh, it's going to permeate from this passage. Paul has now been there five days waiting his accusers to come. And Ananias, the high priest, who is 80 years old, right, is making this 60-mile trek uh, to Caesarea to, to ensure uh, that Paul is accused and that Paul doesn't get away. An 80-year-old man is making this, it'd be like Baltimore to Fairfax, except on camel or mule, whatever it is. That is a treacherous journey, but it kind of shows you like how much he wants Paul put away. This 80-year-old man does. The animosity that he has towards Paul. These guys aren't taking any chances. They're not, they're not sparing any expense. And even look, they're going to bring a certain, the, he's described as a certain orator uh, named Tertullus to prosecute Paul. Uh, he was a famed orator, a famed speaker, uh, a persuasive lawyer since we're talking about television shows. It's the law show when you have the famous DA prosecutor that comes in. They call in the big shot to close the case. That's how they feel about Paul. They need this guy to come in and just shut him down. They brought in this big gun to, that just shows their animosity that they have towards Paul. And maybe it was jealousy. Right there, they're seeing Paul and the ministry that he has and the countless converts that are deconverting from Judaism and choosing to follow Christ. It's going to come up a little later in Tertullus's uh, accusations of Paul. But they hated him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to put an end to him. Uh, jealousy, envy. Uh, Paul's crowds were pulling from his crowds. And so they take the top attorney. And the high priest is making an 80, or, or a 60-mile journey uh, to make sure that everything is just put away. That Paul, they were so bitter against Paul, they had so much animosity towards Paul. Notice not only, though, the animosity that they had towards Paul in that first verse, but also we get to the accusations of Paul. And here's where uh, Tertullus begins to really uh, lay out the case, but he doesn't really do it in an ordinary courtroom fashion. Look at verse 2. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, need to understand the word accused here. In the, in the Greek, it's a kategoreo. And you're hearing the beginning of that word, and it's to categorize or to systematize. It's to put together a system of arguments and almost go through it methodically as to put together, you've heard the phrase, an airtight case. As to put together this airtight case as to where Paul would not be able to escape. Uh, the word categoreo is used six times in less than 15 verses. And they are going to attempt to categorically tear Paul apart. The interesting thing about this word is that the majority of the usage in the New Testament exists in describing Jesus and Paul. 
Categoreo, it was over 70% of the usage is used in relation to Jesus and Paul. These are guys that people were constantly accusing, bringing accusation towards. Their animosity towards Paul, they're going to go point by point to categorically, verbally assault Paul. Their animosity towards Paul was driving their accusations towards Paul. And you think about it, what prompted this uh, 80-year-old man to go uh, to trudge 60 miles to categorically accuse Paul? What, what drove them to hire this, this orator to, uh, to try to bring Paul down? Bitterness, animosity, and hatred can drive people to do some pretty crazy things. Have you seen that before? Have you seen that even in our culture today? Uh, this, this hatred, this animosity. Before we get into the specifics, though, of their accusations, can I remind you not to be, may we be reminded to be careful when we accuse other people. Uh, I think sometimes we can be so flippant, flippant in our accusations of others that we need to examine the heart that those accusations, the motives of those accusations, because motives matter. You can say the right thing with the wrong motive and have it be the wrong thing. And we're going to see that uh, very acutely in this passage. Uh, because and we, we see this, categoreo is, yes, it's used to describe things that are brought before Jesus and things that are brought before Paul, but in Revelation chapter 12, we see another person that's called the accuser. Uh, it says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And you notice that it doesn't go to the baselessness of Satan's accusations. It doesn't call him the false accuser of the brethren. It just calls him the accuser of the brethren. It's speaking to the animosity and the motives that Satan has. He, he too will travel a long way to accuse. Anytime you're tempted to accuse, can I encourage you to ask this question, what are my motives in this accusation? I think sometimes we can convince ourselves that our motives are just and pure because it may be true. But if our motives are derived from a heart that wants to see the downfall of an individual and doesn't necessarily want that person, isn't consumed with that person's repentance in the matter, what animosity are we harboring in the accusations that we make? What hatred is hiding in our hearts? The Bible says this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Anytime you're tempted to accuse, uh, maybe you've said this. I remember I, w I was in a church in Alabama, and uh, they have a very, in Baltimore, Baltimore, I love it because it's so straight up front in your face. They're going to tell you what, you what they think. In the South, it's really subtle. And I would be, I remember one time I was having a conversation with a lady in the church, and uh, this lady walked by, and she said the most delightful things about this individual. And she was just talking about her hair. She was talking about all these different things about this individual. And then when that person walked away, she proceeds to look at me and say the phrase, bless her heart, and then gives this whole litany of things that she doesn't like about that individual. Be leery of someone that will say good things to your face and then flatters you to your face and then says uh, different things behind your back. But we're going to get to the flattery of this because it comes up a little bit later in the passage. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Be careful when you're tempted to accuse. I often notice that critics, I often am a critic 
of people when I see flaws in them that I have flaws in myself. When I point out somebody else's pride, often I need to look in the mirror because their pride is convicting me of my own pride, and I, I, I don't like their pride, but sometimes I'm willing to hold on to my own pride. Be careful when you're tempted to accuse, to criticize. And we even saw Paul last time, right? What, what happened when Paul called uh, the high priest a white wall? Right? He kind of backed up and uh, apologetically, after he had lashed out verbally, he said, I messed up calling the high priest a whited wall. I wish not, brethren, uh, that he was not the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Paul's even going to write in Titus 3 too, right? Speak evil of no man. So when we're tempted to make accusations of other people, when we're tempted to maybe point at their motives or why they did what they did or their actions, may we examine our own hearts that those, that those words, that, that accusation is flow, flowing out of. But on the other end, when you are accused, be careful to walk uprightly. I, I notice that the criticism that I, I have received in my life uh, even if it's overblown or uh, way out of the realm of even possibility, I often find that there's a slim thread of truth in the criticism and accusation that I receive. And often we have to choose the meat and spit out the bones. The, the accusation that they're making of Paul, we'll see a little bit later, that he's, he's leading riots, right? Was there a thread of truth in there? <clears throat> if you really examine, technically, maybe he was, uh, we call them public beatdowns. Uh, he was taken out of the city and the people were beating him. So I guess that that's your definition of a riot. But be careful that uh, when you are accused that you are walking uprightly yourself. Paul in the middle of chapter 23 and even 24, in the middle of these accusations, he's going to say this. I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And in a few verses later in verse 16, he's going to say this to those accusations again. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. You see, Paul wasn't just saying it, he was living it. And so when these baseless accusations came, Paul was able to, with a clean conscience, hold to the relationship that he had with God because the things that he was uttering with his mouth were true because he was living it with his life. 1 Peter 3.16 says this, Have a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you uh, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Notice uh, stumping the evildoers or the, the, the naysayers is not the motive of why we do good. We do good because God has called us to do good. Uh, we do, the the um, stumping of the evildoers is simply a result. So when you're tempted to accuse be careful. Uh, when you are accused, be careful. With that said, uh, the next part of the accusation we see is the flattery of it. And here's really uh, where Tertullus is really going to get into it. Uh, he begins his accusation of Paul with flattery to Felix. It would be like uh, the DA coming in and commenting, Judge, I really like that outfit. I know they all, I know all judges wear that, but you look especially good in that outfit. Uh, it, he's, he begins to flatter him. Remember, it's not Felix the cat, Felix the rat. Verse 2, look at what his flattery, look at what he says. And when he was called forth, 
Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, seeing that uh, by thee, Felix, uh, we enjoy great quietness in the kingdom, which is kind of ironic because we talked about those historians that say there were riots, people rioting in the streets, uh, bribes being paid, great quietness. Really, that, that word quietness has the idea of peace and a wholeness. Under Phoenix reign, there was rioting all around. Uh, and then he says this, seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. Uh, he was a cheat and a crook. And he's saying all of these uh, flattery, things of flattery to Felix to try to butter him up to get a certain uh, decision made. And it's interesting to me, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but the, uh, that the most critical people are often the most falsely fr- flattering people. They're the people that will give you these long, ornate compliments, and then the very next day they'll talk to everybody about how they can't believe you did this. These false accusations, these false fl- uh, flattering people, Uh, They're flattering to your face, but categorically criticize you behind your back. Felix didn't care about the truth. Uh, People who are this way, they don't care about the truth. They they say these praiseworthy things to try to gain advantage, and that's what Felix is doing. He's using praise and flattery to gain an advantage uh, over somebody. I really believe Paul is revealing, this story is revealing to us something about this type of person. His flattery continues, though. Uh, we accept it always, and in all places, look at verse 3, we accept it always, and in all places, a most noble Felix with all thankfulness. I mean, he's really, I mean, I can just, as I read it, I can just, I can hear the flattery. I just don't know how Felix is, like, in awe of, of what this person is saying to him. Uh, Felix, we think you're the best. Felix, we think you're great. Uh, you do a great quietness. You've bring, brought peace to this empire with your worthy deeds. But don't get mixed up. There's a big difference between flattering and praise. Flattering and praise. Flattery has to do with the motives of why, we're off, why praise is being offered. When we say things externally that we do not mean internally. When you're saying things to somebody to get a specific outcome, when you're saying things that you don't actually mean internally, flattery ignores facts. Flattery is not concerned with the truth. Flattery is just concerned with the outcome. Flattery is to gain from it. Flattery uh, is when praise flows flows from our mouth but not from our heart. When we we think about that, I, I think we would all acknowledge to some level we have participated in flattery of some sort in our lives, relationally with other people. But how many of us have participated in flattery before God? I'll read this again. Flattery is when praise flows from our mouth, but not from the motives of the heart. Have you ever been in worship before where you're praising God and you're saying all of, maybe when you're praying, you're praising God, good, good Lord, we love you, we're so thankful, and you're kind of saying those opening phrases, now we get to what my heart really wants. And we almost use praise as a way to get the things that we want from God. And you know a heart that's been doing that because what happens when the request is ignored or God says, no, we're not yet? The person begins to get angry because they feel like, God, I did X, I did Y for you, you should be doing this. Don't get mixed up in flattery. Uh, The Bible says this, "The, the people honor me with their lips, 
but their hearts are far from me. Praising and edifying is about positively reinforcing the positive facts about another. Not in order for them to do something for you, but just for the mere fact that they embody those things, those characteristics. Then he transitions into uh, why he's here. Like, notwithstanding, right? In spite of all of that, we know all of this great stuff to be true about you, Felix. But why we're here, the real matter... Uh, that I bet not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear uh, us of thy clemency in a few words. In fact, he's going to transition from uh, flattery to the facts of the accusation, and they're not very, not very good facts. Look at the facts of it. The first, first they accuse his character. They accuse his character. Look at verse 5. And if you ever want to, if you want ever want to create a list of, uh, of of insults that will evoke a smile, uh, go, we'll, we're going to walk through a few of these these lists. Write them down, and in a joking way, maybe try to to say one of these to somebody and see the reaction that you get. Uh, we'll just start reading them. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow. That's our first one. A pestilent fellow. The first attack is on his character. Tertullus calls him a pest, a pestilent, uh, or compares him to a plague in this passage. Uh, he speaks, and the, the irony of the entire thing is he begins the passage speaking good about a bad man, right? And now he's transitioning to speaking bad about a good man. Look at the second accusation. He's going to accuse his conduct. We have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition, a mover of sedition uh, among all the Jews throughout the world. Uh, basically, the idea here is he's causing uprising. He's, he's instigating riots, insurrections. He's a mover of sedition. Uh, with the revolts that had uh, risen up, the, the irony of this is historians say that none of these revolts, none of these things that people were pointing to, that the accusations are made, actually occurred within Felix's jurisdiction. So even Paul getting beat up, right, it never occurred in Felix's jurisdiction. And so uh, these are some of the accusations that he's making. Third, they accuse his Christianity or his religion. Remember, this stems from the animosity that they have towards Paul. And it drove them to the point where they could care less about the truth, and they're just all about trying to find problems with Paul. Look at the verse of what they said. We have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, this is meant to be both an accusation and an insult. And I would encourage you, there's actually a lot that's written. I didn't really realize how much is written on this passage and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Um, I'm not going to dive into all of that, but I would point you to, if you want to know more about that, uh, Answers in Genesis actually has an incredible article that's written on this that I would point you towards. It kind of talks about all of the false uh, doctrines that arise from this one phrase. And so Nazarenes, though, is meant to be, uh, the sect of the Nazarenes is meant to be an accusation in that Jesus uh, was known as Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Jews that converted to Christianity were often called Nazarenes during this time. But we know from Nathaniel under the olive tree, right? Uh, what does he say when uh, 
the, the Messiah has come from a place called Nazareth, right? Can anything good come from Nazareth, right? And I, I'm not going to try to come up with a Baltimore equivalent, all right? I'm not going to, I know you guys are thinking, like, Ryan's going to call out one of the boroughs, one of the towns in Baltimore. He's going to try to draw equivalent. I'm not going to be baited into that. Uh, but you, this was, a, this was a, 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 a saying of derision towards somebody. It was a negative thing to be, from, to be called of Nazareth or a Nazarene. It's not the same as a Nazarite. And so this is a malicious attack of his character. It is an assault on his conduct, and they're hitting his belief system, saying that he's a ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes. But notice in verse 6, who also hath gone out to profane the temple. Uh, then in a, a self-righteous sub- smugness, he's going to keep on, uh, whom we took and would have judged according to our law, but the chief captain, uh, Lysias, came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, uh, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. So in the accusation, we see the flattery, we see the facts, but then thirdly, we see the following of it. Uh, In verse 9, and the Jews also assented, saying that these uh, were things were so. For some some reason, unfortunately, uh, critics always draw a crowd. Uh, People that weren't even a part of it, people that they just kind of join in spontaneously into the criticism. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, Maybe at work you hear people kind of around the water cooler and they're kind of talking. Uh, You never see people gathering around the water cooler to just praise and talk positively, right? It's always the negative talk that seems to congregate. And you know what? It attracts like flies, right? One person begins criticizing, another person joins in, and then you have somebody from left field that comes in, they put in their criticism, and it just seems to spontaneously attract. And we see this, the animosity, the accusation, but then notice, we see the answer from Paul. And I like Paul. He doesn't mince words. He just kind of lays out the case how it is, and he gives the answer. Understand, Paul had to give an answer here. Paul had to give an offense. Uh, Basically, it was the court of law, and he's just presenting the facts as they are, his defense. He's going to, to the charge of the insurgency, uh, the rebellion, all of these things that uh, the mover of sedition charge, right, that they're bringing to him. Paul says this in verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had uh, beckoned him to speak, answered, for as much as I know that Thou hast been here many years a judge unto this nation. I I do more cheerfully answer for myself, because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. First, he says, to the charge of uh, mover of sedition, uh, I plead innocent, because I didn't have the time. He's like, I was only here, I was only out for for twelve days. I couldn't have possibly organized and orchestrated these riots says the accusations are false because I had no time to put them off. In verse 12, he's going to say, because there's no testimony. Uh, Not only was there no time, there was no testimony for the actions that I did. Nobody came forth to provide specific testimony. Look at verse 12. And they, and neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogue nor in the city. No time. I was only, I only had 12 days. No testimony. I, 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 
there's nobody to my revolt that's witnessing that. Look at verse 13. He says in verse 13, he's going to say there's absolutely no truth to it. Neither can they prove the things whereof they accuse me of. He lays out his defense really quickly, really succinctly, lays it out there uh, and gives this declaration. Look at verse 14. But this I confess unto thee, uh, that after the way uh, which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, uh, that, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense towards God and towards men. His defense is essentially no possible way is, there, is this. Our, our doctrines, he begins to say, I'm well within my rights. I'm well within the law that, of these allowances. Look at, thirdly, the, his details. He retells the story the way it actually happened. Uh, he's going to rebut the account that, Felix, or that uh, uh, Tertullus gives. And look at what he says in verse 17. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been there before thee an object, if they had ought against me. Or else, let, let these same here say, if thou have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except it be before this voice." that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. His defense is not only is there no possible way, his declaration is uh, what I believed I be these laws allow, but then the details of this, he's going to recount the actual story of how it actually happened. It's as if at that point he just kind of, your honor, I rest my case, kind of walks away. But we've seen the animosity that they have. We've seen the accusations that they bring. We've seen the uh, answer that they bring. But notice the action. The judge. Remember the, the dishonorable Felix. Felix the rat. Uh, look at verse 22. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, When uh, Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. He waited to make a decision. Even though like that illustration I gave at the very beginning, right? You're watching Judge Judy, the case is written. Oh, this is, this is cut. This case is really simple. It's this. This is the decision. He says he's going to wait. But look at verse 23. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and that he should forbid none of his uh, acquaintance to minister or come unto him. Second, he gave Paul a certain amount of freedom, but basically he's going to place him under house arrest, right? And look at verse 24. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, uh, Drusilla, which was a, Jewish, a Jewess, he, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. Uh, when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. A convenient season, I will call for thee. 
Paul's gonna, Paul, Paul lays out the gospel message. Felix had some understanding of this Jesus of Nazareth. He had a working understanding of what it was. And so he, he goes to Paul and we're told that Paul reasons with him righteousness, temperance, and judgment. Righteousness, God's a gold standard, right? Holiness, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Uh, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, set about to establish a righteousness of their own. Uh, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Uh, our, our need for temperance, our falling short, our, our helplessness. Paul is expounding the gospel to this man. Our near, and then the nearness of judgment, that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. He expounds Paul in uh, gr the great detail that I'm sure uh, a man of Paul's uh, elite ability is able to explain and expound the gospel in a way. And what is his response in all of this? He trembled. When you read that, can't you feel the Holy Spirit conviction upon Felix? Have you ever seen that before? When you're sharing the gospel with somebody and like they're nodding and it's like they're getting it, they're repeating things back to you, only to get to the very end of the gospel presentation, and they're like, ah, you know, that's great for you, that's not for me. Or, you know, I'm just not ready. And there's, there's, Paul has to kind of feel like, forget the court case, Paul kind of has to feel like, man, you're so close. You're so close. But then look, we really see an insight to Felix's motives in verse 26. What does the Bible reveal about Felix's heart? He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might loose him whereof he sent for him the oftener and, command, and communed with him. The Bible tells us what about money? Not that money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil. This is such a perfect example that we see a man forsake the peace and hope of the gospel for a bribe. We see him exchange the righteousness of Christ for a monetary gain. I don't know if you kind of see the similarities between even our culture today. If you talk about uh, the gospel and the cost of the gospel, we, we forsake, uh, culture actively forsakes the gospel because it's going to cost too much. I like to think that Paul was just super disappointed in Felix. More than just the house arrest that he's under, this, this man doesn't see it. This man doesn't understand. Look at verse 27. But after two years Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. <laughs> uh, he gave up on his conviction from the Holy Ghost and gave in to the desires of the Jews, right? The, the, uh, he, he put down the, the convicting of the Holy Spirit. Look at that. He, he's trembling at the Holy Ghost conviction in his life, but now he's trembling at the Jews, so close, yet so far away from making the right decision. I want us to leave here uh, with something really practical today. And when I was going through this passage, I honestly, I kind of, 
I'm the type of person that when somebody starts making accusations about me, like I got to come up with my, my case, right? I got to have my list of reasons of why they're wrong and all these different things about how to go through false accusations. And I'm going to show them, I'm going to rebut their argument. And my, my, if my, my wife went to go get our daughter, if she was here, she'd be like, yes, yes. And, uh, but what do we do? We've all, we've all been falsely accused at some point in our lives. We've all had somebody that has said something, whether malicious, trying to malign us, or accidental, maybe not intentionally. But in those moments, is your greatest frustration that you're being falsely accused in that moment? What do we see Paul do? Jesus, or Paul is living out the words of Jesus. Jesus told us this was going to happen, right? Remember the Beatitudes? Jesus gives us this list of uh, blessed, blessed, blessed. And the very last one that he provides, he says this, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Paul, Paul probably heard this teaching that Jesus gave. He's, he experienced this teaching that Jesus gave. And what do we, if I had to summarize this in a statement, it'd be this, blessed are those who value being right with God above all things. Blessed are those who value being right with God above all things. And I'll say it this way, blessed are those who, uh, who value being right with God over being right in an argument. Uh, blessed are those who value being right with God above being right in a conflict. You see, at some point in life, we all suffer, we all die, we all have uh, this satisfaction or this, this suffering that we experience in life, but with it, we have the satisfaction that we know that, we're, that our suffering has purpose. That, that, that Jesus told us these things were going to happen to us. In fact, Jesus experienced them. And I, I love how Hebrews describes when Jesus is about to go through the most false accusations. So we talked about that word, caterezo, uh, right? Uh, we talked about that word, and the time it's used the most in Jesus' life is when he's going through the trials of the cross. What, is, what does Hebrews tell us about that time, that trying time in Jesus' life? Hebrews 12, 2, it says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus was able to go to the cross oh, with, this, uh, with this joy that he had uh, because of the joy that was set before him, because of the countless multitude that he knew that was going to come to salvation through his death on the cross. Because he, in it, he was fulfilling the will of the, the Father and understanding that we can have a similar joy through the trials and tribulations of life, through the false accusations of life. Blessed are those who value being right with God above all things. I think just witnessing Paul in this trial, witnessing Paul and a pastor teaching faithfully through this passage, it's very clear from his life that he valued his relationship to God. In the times of conflict, in the times of trouble, may we be people, may those conflicts not pull us further away from God, but may we even more lean into God in those moments of trial. I'm going to close in a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for these nine verses and the example of Paul. 
God, we thank you for his life and what it exemplifies to us. God, I pray that uh, in the midst of the false accusations that we receive, in the midst of uh, the hurt that we experience from people saying things to our face, but then saying something different behind our back. God, in the midst of the hurt and anguish of life, I pray that we would lean even more heavily on your word and our, on our relationship with you. God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. God, we thank you for the Spirit's conviction in our life that leads us in the way that we should go. God, and I pray as we leave this place today that uh, as we experience the hurt, as we experience the sorrow, may you, uh, through your Spirit, direct us wholesale into your Son and, and fully lean on our relationship with you. God, we thank you for what you're doing here at Rosedale. I pray you'd bless us as we leave. Uh, God, and you keep us safe as we return. God, we pray all of these things in your blessed name. Amen.